to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 51 as we hear directly from God through the reading of His Word in Psalm 51. If you don't have a Bible or uh, need to borrow one, there's one in the pew back and directly in front of you, and I believe it's on page 443 if you would like to turn there and follow along. Psalm 51 is, will be our text this morning as well for the message uh, which we eagerly anticipate. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way. And sinners will be turned to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So reads the word of God. Thank you, John, for reading this morning. appreciate that. And I'm not going to preach Pastor's sermon from last week, so I'm going to put that back down here. <clears throat> Unless you want to hear it again, it was a good one. So, <laughs> Well, before we jump in this morning, I just want to read, uh, read something to you all um, from our family here. just want to read this. Um, Dear Walnut Park Baptist Church, on behalf of our whole family, I'd like to say thank you so much for your love and care for our family throughout our first year of being here in Muscatine. It's hard to believe it's already been a year. We have absolutely loved being here and count it a great privilege and a special gift from God to minister alongside you all. Thank you for welcoming us in, painting our house, moving us in, giving us gifts, watching our kids, letting us in, bearing with our weaknesses, 
uh, sharing your rhubarb plants, even though we're not good at successfully transplanting them. <clears throat> uh, sending us cards for all sorts of reasons, sharing encouragements, walking alongside us. Thank you for loving our kids, teaching them truth, assisting and discipling them, and being patient with their noise and exuberance, because they both have that. <clears throat> Thank you for being patient with me personally, as this is my first pastoral role. Thank you for listening to my teaching, asking questions, encouraging me, pointing things out, carefully asking corrective questions that make me think, tactfully and gracefully sharing your opinions and desires, and putting up with my dislike of almost all things paper. <laughs> Thanks for uh, being patient with my burdens, or w with my blunders, like that one, <clears throat> <laughs> and for pointing me again and again to Jesus. And we want to thank you also for the kind and generous Christmas bonus. It was above and beyond anything that could have been expected. Very kind of you all, so we thank you. Being at Walnut Park has been an absolute joy due to the kindness and generosity of you all. It has been exactly what our family needed at this time, and we cannot say thank you enough. And I want to say with the Apostle Paul, we thank our God in all our remembrance of you, always in every prayer of ours, for you all making, your prayer, making our prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We love you and are so thankful to minister alongside you, the Allen family. So I just wanted to share that with you all. It's, been, it's hard to believe it's been a year already, um, but we, have, we really have. We have absolutely enjoyed being here. It has been a great joy. You all have made it a great joy. Um, I was uh, thinking about the, the passage in Hebrews. We'll probably get to it in, in a few months here um, on Communion Sunday. In Hebrews 13, um, the writer says, Obey your leaders and, and let them watch over you with, with joy because they have to give a, an account for your souls. And um, I know we're not there yet, but I, I do want to say it, it has been with joy. And you all have made it a joyful thing to serve and be here. And so we want to say thank you for that. And... Now let's put all the sentimentality aside and do what we uh, came here to do, which is to study God's Word together. That's the most important thing. Um, we want to pray the Scripture. We want to sing the Scripture. We want to read the Scripture. We want to teach the Scripture. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Psalm 51. <clears throat> and so let's pray together, and then we'll jump in here to Psalm 51. God, we want to thank you this morning for the privilege of being able to open up your Word. And for a very long time, for centuries, people did not have your, an, a personal copy of your word. And we are so blessed to have so many, so quickly accessible. And Lord, we want to thank you this morning that Psalm 51 is part of your word. Because the reality is for all of us that we are all sinners. And we desperately need to understand how, what to do with our sin. And we thank you that you have prescribed a way for us to handle our sin. And we thank you even more that you meet us with forgiveness and love and mercy and compassion. Would you free us this morning, Lord, from our sin, from the guilt of our sin, as we try to understand a little bit better how to repent, how to confess our sin. Would you free us, would you rid us of it so that we can have a restored constantly restored relationship with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, this, mor- uh, this month we are emphasizing prayer, and one of the ways that we're doing that is by learning to pray the Scripture, and especially praying the Psalms. And the Psalms are a great place to start learning to pray the Scripture uh, for many different reasons. I've, I've loved learning to pray the Psalms because, first of all, many of the Psalms are already written as prayers. They're already written as prayers, and many of them you'll find the psalmist speaking directly to God, kind of like in Psalm 51, he's speaking, and you see uh, David prays, your steadfast love against you have I sinned, you may be justified, and so forth. So he's just talking directly to God, and so it makes it so much easier for us to just pick up this, the, the, the psalm and just pray it back to God because it's already a prayer. But I've also loved that there are all different kinds of psalms. There are happy psalms, there are sad psalms. There are sad psalms that end as happy psalms. There are sad psalms that end as sad psalms. <laughs> a lot of sad and happy. <clears throat> there are asking psalms. There are bursting with joy psalms. There are hard place psalms. There are reflective psalms. There are I'm angry psalms. There are all kinds of psalms. And so in almost every season of life, whatever you are experiencing at any given moment you can pretty much just open the book of Psalms and you can find a prayer to pray exactly what you are feeling back to God. And so that's one of the reasons I love being able to learn to pray the Psalms. And today, what we find is we find a Psalm to pray when you have sinned. And this Psalm is filled both with words for us to pray when we don't know what to pray, and it's filled with so much good instruction. It teaches us how to confess our sin, how to repent. And this is the question we want to ask. How should the people of God truly repent and confess their sin? Because we, I mean, we try this a lot, right? I mean, and sometimes we, we, we repent of our sin, but then we end up finding ourselves back in it over and over and over and over again. And the question is, do we really repent? And, and, and we could be tempted to think, oh, maybe repentance doesn't work because I tried that and, and it's, not really, it's not really doing it. Well, I think God's word might help us to understand that repentance is actually more than what we might think it is. It's not just feeling bad. There's, there's more to repentance, and that's what this psalm teaches us. And so let's jump in, and let's look at this psalm and try to understand how should the people of God repent of their sin. And you'll notice, um, I appreciate John reading the title. You'll notice the title here. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so we know exactly what was going on when David wrote this psalm. And this is how David confessed his devastating sin. And you can read about all this, this entire account of his sin in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And if you like to write in your Bible, let me encourage you to just write in the margin, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, because that is the entire story of what's going on with David here. So while David's, let me just give you a quick version. While David's men were off at war, King David stayed at home. And while he was at home, he saw from his rooftop a woman bathing. He called for her to come to his palace and he committed adultery with her. This is King David, a man after God's own heart, falling this dramatically. As a result, this married woman became pregnant by David. And so to cover his tracks, David ultimately had her husband murdered in a stealthy way so that no one would know. And he almost got away with it. 
but God knew. And God sent a prophet named Nathan to, to, to David to confront David with his sin. And the confrontation from God penetrated David's heart. And so this psalm is David's response when Nathan brought the word of God to David. This is David's response. And so this psalm has much to teach us. And what we find, what we see first, when David came to realize his sin, he recognized, first of all, his need for a pardon. He had a need to be pardoned. So when David was awakened to the depths of his sin, he became keenly aware that he was in desperate need of forgiveness from God. If God did not forgive him, he had no hope. He needed a divine pardon for his sin. And I think it's important for us to understand how David went about receiving this pardon for his sin. Could he just quick cover up all the things that he did and try to hide it so that maybe God wouldn't recognize, God wouldn't see? No, that wouldn't work. He already tried that and it didn't work. Could he maybe do something else? Could he make changes in his life to affect more good than the damage that he caused so that maybe God would change his mind? Oh, look, you've done this and this and this, so I guess it's really not that bad. No, certainly not. David sinned, and there was nothing that David could possibly do to undo his sin. I mean, think about it. David committed adultery. That cannot be undone. David murdered a man. That cannot be undone. And so the only hope that David had rested completely on the character of God. Only true repentance before a just but merciful God could possibly lead to forgiveness and pardon. And the same is true for us. Whether we've done something so egregious as adultery and murder, which I'm guessing Probably no one in this room has done that. Or if we've just lied in some way or damaged someone with our words or even something as seemingly slight as judged someone in our own heart, every one of us has sinned against God. And every single one of us needs a pardon from God. And so what does true repentance look like? How does God want me to respond when I sin? Whether it's a big sin or a little sin, how does God want me to respond when I sin? And what we're going to find here is that, first of all, that true repentance looks like acknowledging my sin. First of all, it's acknowledging my sin. So when we look at the psalm, there are several things there are several things I think we'll find that it's important for us to recognize what David does not do in this psalm. Right off the bat here, we notice that David does not cover up his sin. I mean, did you know this? I mean, did you recognize this in Psalm 51? He, he, there, at no point in the psalm does he try to cover up what he does. Um, have you ever had, had to confess to someone that you lied? If you're a Christian with a pulse, then you probably have. <laughs> Um, I mean, is it just me, or is it really, really difficult to actually say, I have lied? <laughs> I mean, am I, am I the only one that that's really difficult for? Like, I mean, if you're like me, it's, it's a whole lot easier to say, I bent the truth 
a little. Um, or even like, I was not completely honest. Just makes it sound a little bit better, right? Or um, I may possibly have somehow accidentally, though slightly pers- purposely, been somewhat inconsistent with an absolutely factual reality to some degree. A little. It's a lot easier. We like to try to, even in the way that we confess our sins to one another, we do it in such a way that makes it sound like it really wasn't that bad, or it even emphasizes what somebody else did to us, and so that's why I had to do this in the first place. And it's, Why is it so hard to just say, I lied? <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> but David doesn't, he doesn't add anything to make it sound less bad than what it really is. He's real, and he's honest and open about his sin. Look at verse 3. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I know it, he says. My sin is ever before me. It is constantly in front of me. I can't get away from it. I know it's sin and I know it goes down deep. Did you catch that part in verse five? Do you see that? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David is not saying that my mother was sinful in the way that she she conceived me. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am sinful from the moment that I was conceived. And this is not just his way of casting blame somewhere else for his sin. Like, we like to do this, right? Don't we like to do this? It's just the way that I am, right? Um, As if it's not really my fault, it's somebody else's fault. And uh, so you better just get over it and, and, and work with it. I, that's what we like to do. We like to say, oh, it's just, it's just who I am. But that's not what David is saying. No, in this verse, David is essentially saying, I am so sinful. I was born such a dreadful sinner, and sin has affected me ever since. He says, I'm sinful because I sin. Like, I do sins, and it makes me a sinful person. But I am also sinful, and so I sin. Do you see the little difference there? I am so deeply infected with sin that what comes out of me is sin. <laughs> That's what David is saying here. He doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't cover it. He acknowledges it. But then he takes an important step. He takes this confession an important step further, a very important step further. Because true repentance looks like acknowledging my sin and agreeing with God about it. Again, David doesn't try to soften things here. He calls his actions what God calls them. He doesn't use his own insight, what what he feels as a measuring line for what, what sin is. He doesn't use what the culture says is sin as a sin line. He doesn't use what his parents say. He doesn't use what his kids say. He he uses what God says. What does God say about it? He calls it what God calls it. And he uses four different words for sin in this psalm. I don't know if you caught that as you were reading the psalm. He he calls it transgression, which is like a crime, crossing the boundary, violating a law. He also calls it iniquity, which is like a misdeed or, or guilt because of sin. He also just calls it simply sin, or missing God's mark of perfection and holiness. 
or like acting, thinking, feeling, saying something that God forbids or that violates God's character. It's sin. And he calls it evil. Some kind of morally wrong or objectionable behavior. He calls it what God calls it. Did you notice where he says, I have sinned in thy in your sight, God, I have sinned. And he understands that, that, that his sin is really against God. Okay, but there's this, there's, this, there's this one little hard phrase in this psalm. Not just one, but there's a few. But there, there's one really hard. I don't know if anyone else squirmed when you read verse 4. Because he says, Against you, you only have I sinned. So in the Hebrew language, they don't have exclamation points. So when they really want to emphasize something, they say it twice. And that's what he does right here. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, did anyone else realize that? And, and like, okay, wait, a, just wait a minute. Like, um, what, about, uh, what about Bathsheba? Didn't you sin against Bathsheba? I mean, she's experiencing all sorts of consequences because of your sin, David. Uh, what about Uriah? He is now dead. <laughs> Didn't you sin against him? What about um, like Uriah and Bathsheba's family? I mean, this is a massive curveball that they've been thrown in their family. Somebody lost a son. Somebody lost a brother. Somebody may have lost a father. Somebody lost a friend. And then what about, I mean, in David's way of killing Uriah, is he sent him along with other soldiers into the heat of this battle and then pulled away from them so that they would die. So there, there are lots of people, lots of soldiers who died because of David's sin. What about their families? What, I mean, there are kids who, who are going home now to no father because their dad has died because of David's sin. I mean, how could David say against you, you only, have I sinned? Because the reality is that sin always affects more than just the sinner. We like to think that sin only affects me, but sin always affects more than just me. So how could David say this? And I think in this verse, David is not trying to cover up the devastating effects of his sin, And he's not trying to belittle the consequences that others faced because of his sin. Instead, I think David recognized a very important thing that we should recognize. He recognized what's at the very heart of every sin. Because ultimately, all sin is against God. This this does not mean that God is the only one that is pained by our sin. I may lash out with my words and cut another deeply. I may show favoritism to one and wound another deeply. I may make choices that severely hurt another. I may even be attempting, like intentionally trying to hurt another person. (laughs) But ultimately, behind every action that does damage to another person is a heart that does not want to submit to God. If you trace any sinful act... Any sinful act that you've done, even if it's toward another person, if you trace it back to its roots, or as we like to say in Iowa, to its roots, if you trace any sinful action back, you will find that it is ultimately a sin 
against God. Let me see if I can explain with, with David. So David sinned against, well, in one sense, he sinned against Bathsheba, right? So he committed adultery, he hurt Bathsheba, okay? But what is David, what, what, what's behind that sin? Do you know what's behind that sin? Oh, God, I, I work really hard. I mean, I'm the king of this, uh, this mass, massive domain. I mean, I've got a lot of responsibility on my shoulders, and um, I don't think you've given me enough pleasure. <laughs> I'm missing something. You didn't give it to me. And so I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and I'm going to do it myself. And we know that's what happened. Because when, Nathan come, Nate, when the prophet Nathan comes to David, you know what he says to him? Um, back in 2 Samuel 12, let me read this to you. 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Here's what God says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. You know what David said? It is too little. He said, it is too little. God, you didn't give me what I wanted. It is too little. That's what David says. David thought it was too little. He disregarded the good hand of God in his life, and he took matters into his own hands. And when you and I sin, even if we are looking at another person, thinking about another person, and intending harm toward another person, our sin is ultimately against God. We don't think God has given us what we need. We think we know better than God. We are impatient with his timing. We disregard God's image in other humans. We're ultimately doing what Adam and Eve did in the garden. We are trying to dethrone God and become God ourselves. And I think this is such an important part of repentance. Because as long as I think I only sinned against you, then there's something that I can do about it. I mean, if you're the only one that I've sinned against, then I completely miss the gravity of my sin. If I only sin against you, then I can make it up to you. Or I can be kind to 10 other people so I feel a little bit better about myself, that I've been kind to 10 people and only mean to one person. Or I can explain it away because, I mean, think about all the things you did to me. So obviously, I completely miss the gravity of my sin, but when I acknowledge that my sin is ultimately against God, that I am left utterly without excuse in the presence of an almighty, holy creator. My sin's a lot bigger than I like to think it is. But I'm also cut to the heart. And I think this is very important in Psalm 51, because what, cart, what cuts David to the heart is not... Is, is not, in this psalm, what cuts him to the heart, is not necessarily the almighty nature of God. He's not like, oh, God's going to destroy me, so I better hurry up and confess my sins. That's not what cuts him to the heart. Do you know what cuts him to the heart? Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. What cuts him to the heart is that he has just wronged the one who loves him. 
I mean, that, that, that word there, steadfast love, Pastor Wood mentioned this or referenced this last week. It's the word hesed. It's, it's loyal love, covenant love. Do you know what's cutting David to the heart? I have just been unfaithful to the one who has been faithful to me. I have been disloyal to the one who has been loyal to me. And it cuts him to the heart because his sin is ultimately against God, the very one who loves him so deeply. And so whenever you and I sin, we must realize that our sin is ultimately against God. We must call our sin what it really is, an attack on God, an attempt to become God, and an abuse of his covenant love toward us. And so David agreed with God about his sin. God is justified and blameless in his judgment, David says, because ultimately it's against him. So, true repentance. It looks like acknowledging my sin, agreeing with God about it, and it looks like pleading with God for mercy on the basis of his compassion. David's only hope after his heinous sin is the mercy and compassion of God toward a horrible sinner. And again, I think it's important that we notice what David does not do in this psalm. You know what he does not do? He does not pray that, um, he, he does not, he, David is not really concerned. He is almost entirely not concerned with the consequences of his sin. Did you notice that as we read Psalm 51? He's not worried at all about what's going to happen. He, I mean, he, he's not praying that God would take away the consequences of his sin. He doesn't pray that God would hide, his, hide this sin from all the people. He doesn't pray that God would give him back the, lost, the son that he lost. He doesn't ask God to let him keep the kingdom. He is almost completely unconcerned with the consequences of sin. And I'll explain that almost in just a second. But most Bible scholars recognize in the psalm a dramatic difference between David's response to his sin and King Saul's response to his sin. Do you remember King Saul in 1 Samuel? You remember, you remember, his, uh, remember how he repented not really real repentance, but he repented of his sin. He, he, he messed up, he sinned, and he said, oh yeah, I've sinned. I'm so deeply sorry for my sin. They had accents back then, did you know that? <clears throat> but you're not going to tell the people, right? And do I really still have to obey? I mean, can't I still spare just a few sheep and that king that I was supposed to, that was supposed to kill? Can I spare them? But especially, especially don't tell the people. That sounds kind of like the way my four-year-old thinks. It actually sounds like the way that I tend to repent, doesn't it? But David was almost completely unconcerned with the consequences of his sin. Nowhere in the psalm does he pray, God, please don't let this happen. Please don't let this happen. Please don't let this happen. You know, you know there is one consequence of his sin. There is a single consequence of David's sin that, he, that matters to him. And it has absolutely destroyed him. It has absolutely wrecked him. The only consequence of David's sin that destroyed him on the inside and led him to beg God for mercy so that he wouldn't have to experience this consequence is this. It's a broken relationship with God. That's what mattered most to David. And so he cries out, not that God would cover up his sin, but that God would cover it. 
with forgiveness. I mean, look at the first few verses of the psalm. Because David does, does kind of two things in, in these first few verses. First of all, he appeals to God's character, who God is. But then he also uses four imperatives. I mean, this is a desperate guy. He's not, he's not just like, oh, please, would you do this? No, he's desperate, and so he's commanding. He's saying, God, do this. L- listen to this. Have mercy. That's imperative. That's a command. Have mercy on me, O God. And he, and he ap- appeals to his, the, char- the character of God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, or the word there would be probably better translated compassion. Blot out, imperative. Blot out my transgression, imperative. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, imperative. Cleanse me from my sin. I mean, David is devastated that his relationship with God is broken, and he is so desperate that he uses imperatives, begging God to forgive him of his sin. Because David recognized that God, if you don't do these things, I will die. If you don't have mercy and forgive, I have no hope. I have no hope except for who you are, the character of God. Then he says in verse 7, look at verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop. I don't know if I was the only one, but the first time I read that, I was like, what what, what is, why, what, what? (laughs) What's going on with hyssop? What is that all about? Well, what David is doing is he's uh, referring to an Old Testament practice. So in the Old Testament, you can read about this in um, uh, Leviticus and Numbers. When, when someone like a leper, okay, when somebody was a leper, they had leprosy, they were ostracized from the community. They couldn't be around other people. Kind of like COVID, right? You got to, you know, stay in, your, stay in your place. Except this was a lot longer. And um, the leper, if, if he were to get better, most of them probably didn't get better. Most of them probably died in their leprosy. But if, if he were to get better then there is a prescribed way that he was supposed to come back into the community. And, and the way he was to do that was he was supposed to come to the priest and he had this, these, this offering that he was supposed to bring. He was supposed to bring a couple birds and one of them he was supposed to kill. And the priest then was supposed to take this branch of, of hyssop. So hyssop is like a plant. It's like this branch. It, it kind of had bristles. It kind of acted like a little brush of sorts. And he would take this hyssop branch and he would dip it in the blood and he would sprinkle the, lep- the former leper seven times. And, and what he was doing was, he was in kind of a ceremonial way, he was declaring that this former leper is now cleansed. That's what he was doing. Aren't you glad that uh, that's not the modern post-COVID or post-flu ritual? <laughs> Sorry, kids, you can't go back to school unless we dip you and douse you with animal blood. <clears throat> I'm glad that doesn't happen. But what's David praying here? You know what he's praying? He's praying, God, declare me to be clean from my sin. And I love this because this is exactly what we need today. Because we stand before a holy and almighty God and we do not measure up. Every single one of us has broken God's law. And like David, we deserve the consequence and condemnation that God gives. And like David, our only hope is to stand before God, be real about our sin rather than trying to hide it, and pleading with God that he would declare us to be clean on the basis of his love. And there's a New Testament word 
that kind of corresponds with this idea of hyssop and being declared clean. And it's the word justification. To be justified means to be declared righteous. And the only way that we can be declared clean, the only way we can be declared righteous is not because of something that we do to bring, to, bring it to the table. No, it's the only way we can be declared righteous is because the holy and almighty God himself became a human who did not sin, but gave his life as the penalty for my sin. He was condemned for my sin. He experienced the consequences that I deserve. Jesus died for me. And because Jesus died for me, when I come to God and humbly admit that my sin is just that, it is sin against God, and that my only hope is Jesus, then God looks at me and he declares me righteous because of Jesus. He looks at me, he sees the work of Jesus, and he declares me righteous. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That we can be declared clean in God's sight because of Jesus. And we say, thanks be to God. Let's thank him. God, we want to thank you this morning that we can be clean. Thank you that we can be cleansed from our sin. Lord, work this in us. We ask for pardon from our sin. In Jesus' name. We're not done yet. I know I'm not supposed to pray till the end, but <clears throat> pastor did it last week and it seemed like a good idea. So <clears throat> we can always talk to God at any time, right? <clears throat> so David recognized his need for forgiveness of his sin. Some of you are like, man, I, I was ready to go eat lunch, so <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> David recognized his need for forgiveness of sin. He needed a pardon from God. But he also recognized another need that he had. Remember, he recognized that he has been sinful from birth. He sins because he is sinful. And though he may receive a pardon from God, he has a heart that is still full of sin and destined to keep sinning. And so he has a second request here. He understands he has a second need. He has a need for purity. Not just pardon, but purity. He wants a change from the inside out. Real repentance does not want to keep doing this. Real repentance is not feeling, like, feeling a little bit bad because I sinned and then going back to it again and again and again. Real repentance desires to experience lasting change. True repentance prioritizes inner renewal. This is absolutely vital for us. David doesn't just want to change on the outside. He doesn't just want to make everything look better. He genuinely wants to change on the inside. Look at verse 6. He says in verse 6, Behold, you, God, delight in truth where? In the inward being. And you teach me wisdom where? In the secret heart. God does not just want right behavior on the outside. He wants your heart. It is not enough to just do all the right things, check off all the boxes. God wants your heart. 
And this is one of the greatest evidences of true repentance. How do you know if you're truly repenting? Are you more concerned with all of the outward consequence of your sin like King Saul was? Or are you broken over the fact that your sin hurts God? God wants and he teaches wisdom in the secret heart. That part of you that no one else sees but God. Is that real? Does that inner heart that no one else sees actually match what everyone else does see on the outside for you? Look at verse 10. See what David is most concerned with here. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit or steadfast spirit, resolute spirit. These are all pleas that David is making with God regarding his inside, what's going on in the inside. God, change my heart. Change what I desire. Don't just change my actions. Change what's really going on on the inside. And I think it's important for us to just take a note very quickly to understand when David says, because this could be potentially confusing. When he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me, okay, what David is not doing, this is not intended to be a theological explanation of the Holy Spirit. And in other words, David is not trying to imply here that if you do this sin and this sin and this sin, well, then the Holy Spirit, God might take his Holy Spirit from you. Um, if you're a New Testament believer, you've got the Holy Spirit, but if you do this and this and this, then God might take that from you. No, that's not what David is saying. That's, that's, this is not intended to be a theological understanding. Of, of, the, of how the Holy Spirit works. David is, uh, first of all, living in a different time where the Holy Spirit worked in a slightly different way. And he's also just speaking poetically here. He's simply communicating, God, if I don't have you, I will keep on sinning and sinning and sinning. It is a desperate declaration of a need for God. God, I cannot live without you. I must have you. David understands. He understood that he desperately needed inner cleansing. He needed God to work in him a clean heart that desires God, not his sin. And I think there's a very important ordering of events in the psalm, a very important ordering, and I think, it, I think intentional ordering of David's prayer here. Because David, um, <clears throat> what David does here towards the end of the psalm. Well, look at verse 13. Well, if you're to back up to 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to me. And again, verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Or in other words, and then, deliver me, and then my tongue will sing aloud. Verse 15, O Lord, open up my lips. I'm so, I feel so much guilt that I don't, I can't even, I don't even feel like I can open my mouth to give praise. I don't even feel like I can open my mouth to sing. So open my lips and then my mouth will declare your praise. And then what he does is he explains this ordering in verses 16 and 17. Look at this in verse 16 and 17. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. 
you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. In other words, our form of worship, okay? Their form of worship were burnt offerings. God does not desire worship if there is not this. What, are, what, is, what is the sacrifices of God? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, David is not saying, he's not trying to say that God doesn't care about worship. That's not what he's trying to say. He's not saying God doesn't care about this. But this is what he is saying. And this is vital for us. I know there's kids coming, but it's okay. We'll we'll focus right here. We're almost done. This is vital for us because it separates Christianity from just about every other religion. Do you know what other religions say? Almost every single religion says this. It says, show true worship to God, and then you receive pardon. In other words, you've got to do something, and then God will pardon you. But what Christianity says, what the Bible teaches, is the exact opposite. It says, receive pardon. God changes your heart, and then out of a genuinely changed heart, you express worship to God. God does not care about your worship if it does not come from a heart that is filled, that, that is filled with a, that, just a broken spirit, broken over sin. He doesn't care if you show up on Sundays every week or every so often. He doesn't care if you give money to the church. What? Did I just hear a pastor say that I don't need to give money? No, it's called selective hearing. <clears throat> but that's not really what God cares about. <clears throat> He's not, he doesn't really care if you sing loudly. He doesn't care if it looks to everyone else like your singing is really genuine. He doesn't care if you teach Sunday school. He doesn't care if you preach Psalm 51. He doesn't care if you are the most professional Christian in the room. What God really cares about, what really matters to God, is what's going on on the inside of your heart. What he cares about more than anything else is what no one else sees or knows about you. That's what matters to God. True repentance prioritizes inner renewal before outward worship. And then worship just becomes just an overflow of what's going on on the inside of our heart. And that's why it's so important. We talk about this with the music team. What matters most is not how great we sound. What matters most is not how great we look. What matters most is what's going on in here. And what should happen is there should be a transformation in my heart over what God has done for me, a true repentance of sin And then out of the overflow of all of that, there's just a, you can't help but praise God because of what he's done. True repentance prioritizes inner renewal before outward worship. And we don't have time to get to these last two verses. And so what what I'll I'll just say this, if, uh, you know, these last two verses, it could be like, okay, why is that in there? Why is that in Psalm 51? Well, I have some ideas and reasons and why I think it's in there. Um, And so if you want to talk to me later, let's talk. But, but we, we got to wrap this up. So where, where's your heart this morning? If you're like me, you are very good at making things look all good on the outside. Even when you are struggling on the inside. But God knows. And so let Psalm 51 be a pattern for you in confessing your sin to God. Whether it's a big sin with dramatic effects or even if it might feel like a small sin. God, I acknowledge my sin. I admit that it is sin, 
and I plead with you for forgiveness because of your mercy and compassion. God, change my heart on the inside and then let that flow out into how I worship and proclaim the gospel. These are good prayers for us. And so let Psalm 51 give words to your confession of sin. Let God work in your heart a spirit of real repentance so that your relationship with God would be restored daily. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you this morning again for your word. Thank you that we can repent and experience forgiveness and renewal on the inside. And we pray here at Walnut Park that you would work this kind of repentance in us from a genuine heart that is sorrowful over how our sin hurts you, but then the joy of your overflowing love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness would be the source of just overflowing praise daily and weekly in our church. Would you do this work in our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.